Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is that time. It is Friday night where we take a brief sojourn uh, through some science topics. And so this week especially, uh, we are going to do some uh, fun fact science to kind of give us all a break. Uh, It's been another hard week, so we are going to do some, um, we're going to talk about some things that I think are pretty excellent. Uh, Some of my listeners may not agree, but I think are pretty cool. And then we're going to do some actual, just literally, just sort of fun fact science. There's been a lot of interesting sort of tidbit stories out there lately. Um, But once again, you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And um, before we get started, I do want to remind you that I can be found throughout the week at Evidence-Based Radio on Facebook. And so you can find a lot of things there. Uh, I try to keep up with posts throughout the week. Um, I am always looking for things to link there. And so most of that is stuff I won't get to talk about. Or um, a lot of stuff is visual, which obviously this is not a visual medium. So if I want to uh, do pictures or uh, charts or anything like that, obviously Facebook is a much better place for that. And I do try and keep up with the occasional uh, cute animal pic because really, I think we could all use that, especially nowadays. Um, I also wanted to uh, make one announcement, which is that uh, coming up this Monday is uh, it is that time again of the month where Nerd Night NoHo is happening. So that is 7 p.m. on Monday at the World War II Club. And so this month's topics are mind control, uh, manipulating your audience when making presentations. Uh, and as they say, that's going to be pretty meta. <laughs> and that's by... Um, George Grinstein. And the other uh, talk is going to be To the Batmobile, the ongoing plight of North American bats. Um, so you may have heard of uh, white nose uh, syndrome, and that is still a huge problem. Um, and that is by Jonathan Reichard. And so Nerd Night is always a good time. So I uh, would encourage you to consider attending. Okay, so tonight we are definitely going to talk about uh, some fun and interesting factoids. Uh, The world is terrible right now. Uh, Mother Nature is wreaking havoc both at home and abroad. And our president continues to be racist, ignorant, and selfish. Hooray! (laughs) Um, But we are going to studiously ignore the rest of that tonight. So let's start out with some good news out of California. An article in the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, uh, reports on the results so far of SB 277. And so this was a California state bill, uh, which was enacted last year, and it eliminates the personal belief and religious exemptions um, from vaccines. But it did also expand the variety of reasons one could receive a medical exemption. However, the news is mostly good. In the years since the bill went into effect, non-medical exemptions decreased from 2.37% to 0.56%, which, of course, is a significant drop. 
However, medical exemptions did increase somewhat um, from 0.17% to 0.51%. And there are definitely uh, unscrupulous doctors that uh, are basically uh, selling the idea that they will give your child a medical exemption without any real counterindications. Um, I know that they're out there for a fact. I've read about a couple of them. So unfortunately, it's we're not going to get to perfection um, at any point. But despite this expansion, the overall vaccine exemption rate decreased from 2.54 to just 1.06. And now both of these numbers may seem quite small. You might think, what's the difference? There's not that much difference. But all decreases are welcome. This is a statewide number, and so there are places uh, where the amount of exemptions are still quite high within the state. But with the elimination of the personal belief exemptions, even these hot spots may be somewhat diffused. Um, and a big thing that we've found before, and I've talked about on this show before, is the fact that basically any hurdle you put in place to make it harder for people to get uh, exemptions to the vaccination requirement means that less people will do it. So that is always a good thing. And so obviously SB 277 is a good step. It's working well in California, um, but obviously it isn't perfect. Uh, research has shown over and over again that the more permissive exemption laws are, the lower the vaccine rate. Uh, and so we need to take this data from California and expand it across the rest of the country. Um, almost all of the states in the union, um, I think 47 out of 50, uh, still have personal, some uh, combination of personal and religious belief uh, exemptions. And so it's definitely important not to rest on our laurels and to keep fighting the anti-vaccine propaganda that threatens the children of our nation. Um, And so I think it's really important to keep up the pressure. Uh, We do not want to let people uh, continue to have uh, to believe that a few minutes on Google or a listening to a propaganda piece, uh, something that they found on Netflix, for instance. Um, I do love Netflix, but uh, it does have one fatal flaw. Um, Most of the documentaries on uh, health and uh, well-being on Netflix are terrible. Um, They are not good. They are not well um, researched. They are often basically propaganda pieces. And in fact, Netflix declined to, um, to pick up the new documentary, um, which I'm blanking on the name of right now, but um, which is actually a science-based uh, documentary where a bunch of science moms uh, were interviewed and they talked about actual uh, the science of genetically modified foods and things like that. And Netflix actually declined to have it. Uh, and so it's that is a really uh, interesting thing to do, Netflix. Not sure uh, what's going on there. Okay. 
Let us move on, though, and talk about another uh, sort of hot button issue that uh, this definitely makes me feel a little better about the world. Uh, so apparently uh, some some people's favorite snack food, though I'm not sure who really would it be favorite for. Um, oh, I do like them, but I won't be buying them anymore. Uh, Triscuits, I should say. Um, and so it seems like there might actually be a glimmer of hope for science and evidence-based food choices, uh, finally. And so, of course, that's not coming from the makers of Triscuits, uh, but rather from people who are responding to the fact that Triscuits has just announced that their crackers have been verified by the non-GMO project, which is, uh, that's an entire show's worth of talking about what is wrong with the non-GMO project. Uh, but, of course, they believe that this would be heralded for their, they'd be heralded for their heralded for their good food sourcing practices uh, but rather the hordes of consumers who responded to the announcement were mostly uh, reacting with anger and chagrin and so the official Facebook page is filled with disappointed consumers saying that they will no longer purchase the cracker with many pointing to the very real and very relevant fact that there isn't even any GMO wheat available to make the crackers out of. Now, they've since said that they are sourcing their oil and their spices uh, from non-GMO sources, but still. And um, so there were some some great uh, Facebook uh, comments, so I'll just read a couple of them. Uh, one Facebook user noted, Lost my business. Anti-science and fear-mongering campaigns are no way to market a product. Another, another wrote, You lost my business. I don't support companies who use fear to sell their products. I do not support companies who demonize our farmers and food supply in an effort to sell more of their own. And, of course, there are a lot more comments in those veins. So that definitely warms my heart. Um, and so I am still hopeful, despite the fact that uh, many consumers, there was a recent poll that many consumers don't even realize that non-GMO foods contain DNA. Sigh. But I think that eventually, if we just keep working at it, hopefully... We will triumph and we will win the war against these people who are trying to ban safe and effective food sources. Um, and so what, of course, makes this especially kind of ridiculous um, in this particular instance is that Triscuit even admits in their FAQ that genetically engineered crops are safe, citing a report by the National Academy of Sciences. So, yeah, definitely not feeling the love from uh, Triscuits these days. Um, and, of course, you know, I don't expect this to be an actual win with the company backing down. Uh, you know, that is already very clear. They, they've already come out and said, well, you know, sure, there's some people on social media who are naysaying, but all of our customers have been wanting this. Um, and unfortunately, they're probably pretty right. But I am uh, just happy that at least some people out there besides me are joining in refusing to buy products that sport that little orange 
butterfly. I like butterflies. I am very annoyed at the non-GMO project for trying to ruin butterflies for me. Um, so yeah, uh, just say no to the little orange butterfly is my advice. Uh, it is just marketing and, uh, and of course that's the thing is that, you know, most people think, oh, well this means something. It doesn't mean anything. You have no idea whether or not that, uh, product is still under patent. Most people think that only GMO foods are under patents. That is completely untrue. You don't know how the workers are treated. You don't know what is being put onto that, um, product, it could have harmful pesticides being put on it, but because it's non-GMO, it can still have that little orange butterfly. So it means absolutely nothing about the quality of the product. It is simply crass commercialism. It is completely scaremongering commercialism trying to get you to believe that there's something inherently better about this product when there really isn't. Okay, so now we're going to move on. Um, I just wanted to talk about those couple of things because they actually made me feel a little better today. Um, but now we're going to talk about some fun fact science. So let's start with chimpanzees. They apparently have the ability to understand the rules of rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> The relationship between the signals are nonlinear and must be understood within the context of how the pairs are grouped, the researchers explained. Learning such transverse patterns requires enhanced mental capacity. Being able to do so is useful when forming complex relationship networks, solving problems, or updating what you already know about a subject. Now, this was a pretty small study, but, um, you know... This is the kind of thing where you can probably extrapolate it pretty well. Uh, there were just seven chimpanzees living in a primate research institute at the Kyoto University in Japan. And so the chimpanzees were placed in an experimental chamber that had a touchscreen. And so it would display two different signs. And so according to the researchers, and the, the signs were actually done in chimp hands. So it was actually a chimp hand doing sort of a scissors and a paper and a rock. Um, and so what happened is that the chips, the chimps were first taught paper rock, then rock scissors, and finally scissors paper. Now it did take them some time, according to the paper, uh, quote, once they knew how the pairs fitted together, all the different pairs were randomly presented to them on screen. Five of the seven chimpanzees completed training after a mean of 307 sessions, which indicates that they learned the circular pattern. However, the chimpanzees required more scissors-paper sessions, uh, the third learned pair, than paper-rock and rock-scissor sessions, suggesting that they had difficulty finalizing the circularity. And so this is really interesting um, because what they did next, of course, was that they compared the chimps' responses to those of 38 preschool children uh, between the ages of three and six. Now, of course, they were much more, uh, they were able to grasp the basic concept a lot easier, um, but uh, it turns out that uh, their performance was, however, subject to age. The older the children were, the more accurate they became when all three pairs were randomly presented to them. Participants older than four years played the game with more skill rather than luck. 
This suggests that children acquire the ability to learn a circular relationship and to solve a transverse patterning problem around the age of four years, added lead author Dr. Ji Gao of Kyoto University and Peking University. And so once they had learned the three sets, the chimp's performance compared to, again, that of around a four-year-old. And so they note that we hope our findings will inspire future studies into how age and sex influence the ability of members of various species to learn circular relationships. And um, so, yeah, that's really interesting. And of course, it seems it can be, seem like a weird thing to try and teach them. You know, why are you teaching chimpanzees rock, paper, scissors? But, you know, there is a lot of um, deeper things that we can find out about this, as they note, about sort of the cognitive uh, functions. And, you know, sometimes it can just be fun to teach them rock, paper, scissors than some other less interesting uh, way to test these kinds of um, cognitive functions. And so, yeah, very cool. Okay, so let us next turn to a story about one of my favorite subjects, which is neat things that our ancestors did uh, to show us that they were way smarter than we uh, ever give them credit for, usually. And so this is from Atlas Obscura, which is one of my favorite websites. I cannot recommend it enough. Um, you could lose hours there. Uh, I'm sure that I have lost hours there and will probably lose many more. Um, and so this is an entry on structures in Maybod, Iran, called um, Yakchals. And I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, but uh, I do my best. And so Yakchals are huge beehive-shaped structures that were used to create, wait for it, ice. <laughs> so, of course, we think of like, you know, um, ice boxes being some sort of crazy innovation that happened in, you know, the mid-19th century. But uh, nope, the Iranians had ice uh, way back in uh, 400 BCE. So, yeah. Now, obviously, people had ice, but Iranians were actually keeping it in basically ice boxes. Uh, and so these are ancient evaporation coolers, which were built again starting around 400 BCE. And so the structures allow ice to be created and collected in the colder months and then stored in the structures for the rest of the year. And so the Persians would have used the ice for food preservation and for a bunch of other things, including creating a uh, dessert dish called fadula. And so this is uh, apparently a traditional uh, Persian dessert, and it's made with thin noodles and semi-frozen syrup. So that sounds pretty uh, interesting. I've never had that before, and now I kind of want to try it. <laughs> and so there were several styles of um, yakchals, but all included an underground chamber where the ice was made and stored, along with an above-ground cylindrical structure for moving air around and keeping the ice cool. Often, walls were built around water sources to shade them and to help uh, cool them down so that the ice could be made faster. Now, the structures could also house ice brought down from nearby mountains, um, and of course, again, as well as food that needed to be kept cool. And so the walls would have been made of an extremely thick waterproof material made of a mixture of sand, clay, 
egg whites, lime, goat hair, and ash called sarouge. And, of course, many survive to this day throughout modern-day Iran, which is why we know about them. Um, and so, again, this is just one of those really cool things that uh, ancient people did that we think that we invented, you know, hundreds of years later when ancient people were completely and utterly capable of doing these things long before we were. And um, so, yeah. And in fact, in modern times, there is a different example of something cool like this. It's not quite the same, but it made me think of it. So I wanted to tell you about this. I don't know if I've talked about it before. Um, I've known about it for a while, but it is a building called the Eastgate Center in Harare, Zimbabwe. And it is an extremely interesting and amazing building. And so Eastgate Center is the country's largest office and shopping complex, and it's built in a way that doesn't require conventional heating or air conditioning. It also uses a tenth of the energy of conventional buildings. Now, you may be wondering, how is all this amazing conservation done? Well, the building was designed with methods inspired both by indigenous Zimbabwean masonry and the amazing self-cooling mounds of African termites. And so giant termite mounds can be found throughout the country. And so the termites are actually farmers. Uh, they cultivate and eat a form of fungus that must be kept at exactly 87 degrees Fahrenheit in order to survive. And so the outside temperature can range from between 35 degrees Fahrenheit in the night to 104 degrees in the day. So the termites have developed an amazing architectural solution for keeping the fungus at its preferred temperature. They move throughout the day, opening and closing a series of heating and cooling vents throughout the mound. The system allows them to use convection currents to keep the mound at the proper temperature. And so they are continually changing the vents in order to keep the mound at the right temperature. And so Eastgate Mall follows a similar construction pattern. The mostly concrete structure has a ventilation system that functions similar to that of the termite mound. There are two towers which are connected by an open space, which is covered in glass but open to the breeze. So air is drawn into the towers and is either warmed or cooled by the building's concrete structure, depending on which is hotter. It is then vented into the building's internal spaces along the sort of spine of the building before being vented from chimneys in the roof of the buildings. And so fans in the first floor are used to draw the air in continuously. And so the air then rises throughout the building, replacing old air with new air as it rises and is eventually expelled from the roof. The building also employs shades on windows combined with deep overhangs to reduce the amount of radial heating from the sun. And so it has this amazing ability to not need air conditioning and um, is able to function with a huge, huge, huge reduction in energy costs. Now, of course, <laughs> it doesn't do not to note that Zimbabwe has many, many problems that need to be addressed. Um, but if more people adopted this kind of architecture, it would go a long way to helping reduce our energy dependence. Um, so I think that we could definitely learn a, two, 
a thing or two about this. Of course, this wouldn't be, uh, it wouldn't work for every place. Um, I'm sure that there are certain uh, places in the world where this kind of architecture will work and other places where it clearly wouldn't. Um, but I think it is very cool to, um, it's another one of those great things that we're constantly talking about, which is, of course, biomimicry. Uh, why try and solve something from scratch when you can basically cheat and steal from nature? <laughs> um, I think that that is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Uh, if nature has actually figured out a better way to do it, then by all means, you should do it that way. Okay. So now we are going to move on and talk about a story that I am very happy about because it resolves, at least to some extent, a debate that has raged for quite some time. And that debate is, were those Norse folk who went out Viking all men? Or were there women warriors, as has long been suspected but never proved to everyone's satisfaction? Um, and of course, I say that with Bit of disdain because uh, it seems like there's been just a touch or a gallon of sexism involved in a lot of this uh, research. But anyways, um, it turns out that we can now say with a high level of confidence that at least one woman was buried in a high status warrior's grave. In fact, this grave, I love this, this grave has long been the type specimen or the example used when talking about what a Viking warrior's grave should look like. <laughs> I just think that's magical um, that this woman is buried in the type specimen grave. Um, and so the grave is located in the Swedish Viking town of Burka, and it's from the mid 10th century, and it was first excavated in the 1880s. Now, the skeleton showed signs of possibly being female, um, but it had been assumed to be male because of the trappings associated with being a warrior and the idea that women couldn't be warriors, so clearly it had to be a man. Now, the body was buried with two horses, a mare and a stallion, and was surrounded by weapons including a sword, an axe, a spear, and armored piercing arrows, along with um, two shields. The body was also buried with a gaming board and a full set of gaming pieces, which is important. Quote, the gaming set indicates that she was an officer, someone who worked with tactics and strategy and could lead troops in battle. What we have studied was not a Valkyrie from the sagas, but a real life military leader who happens to have been a woman, says Charlotte Hayden Stirna Jansen of Stockholm University, who led the study. Now, the study notes that already in the Middle Ages, there were narratives about fierce female Viking, Vikings fighting alongside men. Although continuously reoccurring in art as well as in poetry, the women warriors have generally been dismissed as mythological phenomena. And again, I would, of course, note that I'd say that the dismissal was firmly rooted in the sexism, especially of 19th and 20th century archaeologists. And, of course, uh, in the 70s, basically, it was looked at again, and the skeleton was again thought to be somewhat female, but again, there was no way to actually prove that. But now, researchers have successfully retrieved and sequenced 
DNA from the skeleton, which confirms that the individual had two X chromosomes and no Y chromosome. DNA was extracted from both the left canine and the left humerus, and both samples allowed for sequencing of the genome. And so the ancestry of the woman, based on her DNA, suggests that she is most closely related to modern-day Northern and Western Europeans, to a lesser degree those of the Eastern Baltic, and um, that she is much more similar to those of Northern descent than those of Southern European descent. More precisely, her DNA closely matches that of current residents of Southern and South Central Sweden. Interestingly enough, though, uh, further tests... with strontium isotope values from her teeth suggested that she was actually not originally from Burka, uh, but her burial good, her burial goods and the placement of her burial near the fortification of the town and on a promontory suggests that she was a high ranking member of the town by the time she was buried. And now just to back up a little bit, uh, strontium isotope uh, testing is a really cool thing. And if you don't know about that, I just wanted to explain it a little bit, which is basically you, if you have a skeleton and you have teeth in that skeleton, you can test the strontium isotope values. And so basically places leave a, there's a specific fingerprint for a lot of places as far as um, what strontium fingerprint they will have. And so you test the strontium fingerprint of the teeth and then you can sort of look at a map and see which uh, which areas that would line up with. And then you can, it's pretty precise, in fact. You can find out in a pretty, uh, you know, it, it can often be a very small area from where this person might be based on that strontium isotope reading. And so it's a very cool kind of um, testing that they can do. Um, but... Just to finish up with this, uh, Burka was actually a rather cosmopolitan city uh, with connections as far as Byzantium. So again, the Vikings uh, pretty much were everywhere in uh, Europe and also in the uh, Middle East. Uh, Vikings were just all over the place. And I don't think we sometimes we tend to think about them being in sort of Ireland and England, but they were also in Byzantium. They were in Russia, they were in Sicily, they were in North Africa, they went everywhere. Um, And so Burka would have been a cultural crossroads and an important center for Viking trade and exploration. So this woman is almost certainly the kind of woman that one might find in those old epics. And so it is very cool to have found this and to finally be able to say yes this is a woman. And again, it just tickles me to death that it is the uh, type specimen grave for Vikings that holds this woman. Um, It's just so wonderful. Okay, so it is the half hour, though, so we should take a break. You are listening to Valley Free Radio 103.3 FM in Northampton. And we are going to take a break to do some PSAs. So hang on for just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. 
I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. My name is Amanda Messer. I'm 17 years old and I'm a student from Turner's Falls High School. Billboard bodies. Does anybody really look like that? Someone could be flipping through a magazine, looking at that pretty girl or that buffed out guy, then go gag themselves. We need to love our looks for what they are, other than what people say they need to be. People can have beauty no matter what they look like. Beauty only comes from the, from the heart, soul, and mind. Most magazines emphasize the outside when it's the inside that really matters. And change in society would be most ideal for everyone. Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, sassy! <coughs> you will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? <coughs> Over five million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? <coughs> Help us, sassy! <coughs> Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Remember, adopt. You don't let your kids play in the toilet. That's what it's like when pet owners don't pick up pet waste. Irrigation and stormwater can carry this pollutant to storm drains and retention areas where our children play. Do the right thing. For yourself and your community, pick up after your pet. Bag it and properly dispose of it in the trash. Remember, only rain in the storm drain. Brought to you by Stormwater Outreach for regional municipalities. Visit storm at www.azstorm.org. Nerd Night NoHo is proud to support Valley Free Radio, where a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art, culture, and science. You can find us at noho.nerdnight.com. Nine Volt Heart is a music program filled with contemporary roots music with heavy doses of new grass and Americana goodness. It comes to you live every Saturday from 3 to 5 p.m. on WXOJ-FM, Valley Free Radio. The focus of the show is current releases in American string music with a large portion of the show dedicated to who's coming to the Pioneer Valley. 
Expect lots of interviews, in-studio guests, and ticket giveaways. My name is Ed Malachowski. I'm the host of 9 Volt Heart. Tune in every Saturday afternoon for the best in Americana and newgrass music. Okay, we are back. Uh, program note, I keep forgetting to tell Ed he needs to update his promo. Ed is now from 5 to 7 on Saturdays, and uh, I definitely recommend tuning in. Uh, his show is really great, and he does bring in a ton of guests. Um, and he does a bunch of interviews, and he just, if you like bluegrass, newgrass at all, uh, Americana kind of music, I highly recommend him. Okay, so let us get back to science, though. This is a super fun story. I couldn't resist telling you about this. Uh, so, yeah, I uh, spun the wheel of fun science stories, um, and it landed on Diego. <laughs> and um, so he is basically an animal that has single-handedly saved his species. Who is Diego? Diego is a hundred-year-old giant hooded tortoise that has been busy bringing the species back from the brink of extinction. Fifty years ago, the population of Chelenoides hudensis on the Galapagos island of Española was down to 12 females and 2 males. Well, it turns out they really only needed one male. <laughs> Since 1976, Diego has fathered more than 800 young. Two out of every five hooded tortoises uh, are his offspring, according to gen genetic testing. Uh, two out of every five who are living currently. Um, <laughs> he's a very sexual, sexually active male reproducer. He's contributed enormously to repopulating the island. Washington Tapia, a tortoise preservation specialist at Galapagos National Park, told Agence France Press. Diego was captured sometime between 1900 and 1959. No one's really sure when. <laughs> uh, but he ended up at the San Diego Zoo. And so he was hanging out there until uh, in 1976, it was determined that he was a member of a rare and endangered subspecies. Uh, and so he was brought back to the Galapagos to a captive breeding facility. He now lives in an enclosure with six female tortoises. <laughs> and um, so, you know, he is living the good life. <laughs> Many other species of giant Galapagos tortoises have unfortunately gone extinct. Uh, perhaps the most famous is Chilinoidus abingdoni, uh, which faded into history when its last known survivor, uh, known as Lonesome George, uh, failed to breed in captivity and finally died in 2012 at more than 100 years old. Diego, however, is going strong. He is currently 175 pounds and five feet long and all ladies turtle. <laughs> and uh, he does not have seem to have any interest in sharing George's fate. And uh, so he is pretty spectacular. He is the only known single animal 
uh, which has led to the recovery of a species. Um, he is the only one to which the recovery of a species can be directly tied. Uh, so tip of the hat to Diego uh, for his part in the conservation of a very cool species. Um, so yeah, um, of course, the famous story about uh, Galapagos turtles is that uh, when Darwin came or came across them, he kept trying to uh, bring them back to England, and other people did too, but apparently they were just so delicious that they never got back there. People would eat them before they got back to England, and this is a very well-known uh, story about how it was just very hard, and it took a really long time for people to actually uh, bring them back and have them shown because they would end up getting eaten on board ship. Um, so hopefully nobody finds out that Diego is delicious because uh, we definitely want to have them around and not on anybody's dinner plate. Okay, so let's move on now and talk about this one's a really weird one. It's kind of one of those um, ones where uh, it's sort of something that happened accidentally and you're just like, huh, that's really cool. Maybe we should do that on purpose some more. So an experimental conservation project that was abandoned soon after it was begun has been rediscovered and been found to have succeeded beyond the wildest dreams, frankly, of its original creators. The plan was started by a juice, juice company. Um, well, I mean, technically it was uh, started by a couple of Princeton researchers um, where originally hatched, hatched it. But basically this juice company uh, back in the mid nineties was uh, the idea was to dump waste orange peels in a barren pasture in Costa Rica. Now it was canceled after just under two years. Um, but in that time, a thousand truckloads had already been sent out and a three hectare or seven acre uh, site had already been covered in peels. Today, that barren patch covered in orange peel uh, has become a lush forest with an increase of 176% of above ground biomass in the area. Quote, this is one of the only instances I've ever heard of where you can have cost negative carbon sequestration, says ecologist Timothy Truer from Princeton University. It's not just a win-win between the company and the local park. It's a win for everyone. Now, the plan, again, was originally hatched by two Princeton researchers, Daniel Jansen and Winnie Hawaks. Uh, who approached the Costa Rican orange juice manufacturer Del Oro with the idea. And so the plan was that if Del Oro agreed to donate part of its land bordering the Guanacaste Conservation Area to the National Park, the company could dump its orange peels at no cost on a degraded piece of land in the park. So the juice company took up the deal and started dumping peels on a patch of virtually barren land. Within about six months, the orange peels had been converted from orange peels into this thick, black, loamy soil, Truer told Scientific American, kind of passing through this, well, gross stage in between of kind of sludgy stuff filled with fly larvae. Now, however, 
uh, however, though this may seem like a great idea, uh, the plan was unfortunately unceremoniously cut short when a rival company called Tico Fruit sued Del Oro, claiming they defiled a national park. Unfortunately, the country's Supreme Court sided with Tico Fruit. Uh, this is a, another example of why science shouldn't be decided in a court of law. <laughs> and, of course, the program was then ended and soon forgotten. In 2013, Truer decided to try to find that patch of land and see how it had fared. It was actually quite difficult to find it, it turns out. He says, it didn't help that the six-foot-long sign with bright yellow lettering marking the site was so overgrown with vines that we literally didn't find it until years later, Truer told Marlene Simons at Popular Science, after dozens and dozens of site visits. It turns out that, compared to surrounding areas, the land once covered in orange peels has richer soil, more biomass, and a greater diversity of trees, including, apparently, a fig that would take three people wrapping their arms around it to trace their circumference. Now, part of the thing, though, is that, to be honest, the researchers aren't even really sure how this all happened. Uh, they suspect that a combination of improving the soil while also suppressing invasive grasses was the catalyst for the transformation. But of course, because they weren't watching it, they're not quite sure. And of course, one of the big things that um, Tura notes is that uh, greater biomass equals greater carbon sequestration. And so he says... Uh, in a very uh, wise uh, comment that it's a shame where we live in a world with nutrient-limited degraded ecosystems and also nutrient-rich waste streams. We'd like to see those things come together a little bit, come together a little bit. That's not license for any agricultural company to just start dumping their waste products on protected areas, but it does mean that we should start thinking about ways to do thoughtful experimentation to see if in their particular system they can have similar win-win-win results. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that would be pretty cool myself. So hopefully they will be able to figure out exactly how they were able to do this. Um, well, I mean, they basically know how it happened, um, but maybe they'll be able to sort of do this in other places um, and maybe even try that again in Costa Rica, since you can now point to this place and say, no, it worked really well. Um, so stop trying to, uh, I mean, Technically, uh, Del Oro was probably getting a leg up on its competition because clearly they still had to pay uh, to dump their uh, orange peels somewhere else. So I can understand why the other company was miffed <laughs> uh, if you want to look at it from a capitalist standpoint. Um, but I think that it is so important to think about how uh, companies like this can do this sort of thing where they can get a benefit. They can get rid of their trash without having to uh, actually pay someone to deal with it. And we could potentially refresh places that are uh, degraded with this sort of agricultural waste. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's very exciting. All right. So another really cool story uh, is 
it's from earlier this year, but I've I sort of kept it as a tab open in my browser because I really did want to get to it at some point, but it never seemed to be the right uh, show. So with this being sort of the uh, uh, tidbits show, I thought that it was finally time. And so this is a story about a little device called Tactile. And it is an invention that translates text to Braille in real time. And this is text like on a piece of paper in front of you. And so the device is a first of its kind, and it was developed by six young women at MIT. And so the team of women consists of Chen Wang, Chandani Dashi, Grace Lee, Jessica Shi, Charlene Jia, and Tanya Yu. And so the first prototype uh, that they created was during a uh, 15-hour period. And so uh, they went to this competition called Make MIT Hackathon. Uh, And so that competition gives the teams 15 hours to design, code, test, and debug a project. And so this is what the girls came up with, the young women Uh, And so despite the roughness of the first prototype, uh, which did need to be connected to a computer and only read one character at a time, their design actually won and they've continued to develop it. And so now the device has been refined by the group into something much more useful. The so-called Braille cell translates text six characters at a time using a small camera with letter recognition capabilities, which translates the text and converts it to the Braille character, which is then raised up along the top of the cell for reading by the person using the cell. And so basically there is several little kind of boxes that have um, uh, sort of like... um, tiny rods i'm you've probably seen a braille reader before hopefully it it does that um and so the the little rods pop up and you can feel them against your finger and then you can if you read braille you'll know what what it means um and so it is very cool And so the newest prototype is actually the size of a candy bar and it no longer needs direct connection to a computer And they are hoping that it could be useful to those who are blind, uh, including 1.3 million legally blind Americans. It's a dramatic change in how you access information, Paul Paravano, their advisor, who has been visually impaired since he was three, said. Probably the most difficult challenge that blind people have in the workplace and even in one's personal life is getting access to print. Because it turns out most machines of this sort are mainly aimed at digital text rather than printed materials, and they also happen to be very expensive. And so the team hopes that tactile could eventually be sold for $200 or less. And of course, that would be amazing. Now, there is some dispute about how many blind people are actually able to read Braille, um, but those in the industry seem very interested in the product. And so the students have won multiple awards and they are actually now being supported by a Microsoft program that provides pro bono legal support to female inventors in hope of increasing the percentage of patents by women in the U.S., which is at currently just around 5.5%. 
Now, of course, I'm sure there is a lot of hidden female work that went into many of those patents that are actually assigned to men over the years, but that again is a story for another time. Okay, let us wrap up tonight with one more weird story. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, this one is about ancient scrolls. And so apparently there are a lot of ancient documents that have been marred by purple spots that until now were of an unknown origin. But Luciana Migliore, an exotoxicologist at the University of Rome Tor Vergata, and colleagues think that they have solved the mystery. The answer is actually was quite unexpected. And so the team used a scroll from the Vatican's not-so-secret archives uh, to analyze the spots and figure out what they came from. And so it turns out that the culprit is actually uh, a marine micro is marine microbes that love salt, which is weird because this manuscript, like many others with such spots, haven't ever been near the ocean. <laughs> when my students came to me saying, Luciana, we found marine bacteria, I told them, repeat, please. There is a mistake. There must be a mistake. Um, and so Migliori uh, noted this. And so it turns out that she is actually a toxicologist who usually works on marine plants. Um, so you'd think this would be less of a surprise. But she was actually working in a completely different manner. A friend had asked her to start uh, teaching biology in a conservation and restoration program for, you know, documents and things. And so that's where she came across this scroll. I thought that I could apply the techniques that I'm that I've. I'm used to applying to underwater plants to scrolls and old documents, Migliori, Migliori told Live Science. And so she used next generation gene sequencing to see what microbes were eating the scrolls. Now, they ended up cho choosing the scroll of Laurentius Luricatus. Um, and they say it was because it was both beautiful and also because of the uh, incredible tale that it tells. Um, I think it's a little bit more weird, but hey, <laughs> to each his own. It turns out that uh, the young man accidentally killed someone and then decided to spend the rest of his life, 34 years of it, uh, in a cave, uh, burning his face with a hot iron and wearing a hooked chainmail shirt uh, directly against his skin as penance. Um, and so the goatskin scroll dating from um, from 1244 uh, CE contains a plea from the inhabitants of the nearby area to make Luricatus a saint. And so it turns out uh, that when they actually learned what had happened to these scrolls when they were being prepared, it all started to make sense. And so it turns out that when the scrolls are uh, being prepared, or when the skins are being prepared to be made into parchment, they are bathed in a sea salt bath to help preserve the skin. And so this is where those marine-loving microbes originated and how they were able to make their mark on the scrolls. Once those microbes died out, another set of microbes came in, which ate not only the remains of the original microbes, but also began to eat away at the collagen matrix of the parchment itself, causing bits to fall off. 
Now, there's no way to reverse damage to the collagen that's already been done, though keeping a scroll in a climate-controlled condition will prevent further damage. But, as for the pigment, Migliori thinks that there may actually be a way that it can be removed, but more research will be needed. And so finally she notes, in this way, this work opens new perspectives because we have to study to see if it is possible to make something of this parchment. So hopefully in future, they will make something of this parchment. All right, that is all the time we have for today. Um, As you can tell, I'm rushing a tiny bit. Uh, Please do stay tuned for civil politics coming up next. Good night.